This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin. Heard every Saturday morning at 9 on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Welcome, friend, to our weekly garden party. We hope you brought along your questions because it's time to dish the dirt. On The Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin, exclusively on Zoomer Radio. Well, good morning and welcome to The Garden Show. Now, before I do anything else, let me check in with our master gardener to make sure all systems are go from her home in Prince Edward County. Well, good morning, Charlie. Good morning, Franklin. How are things out at your place? Well, we're still self-isolating, don't you know? But <laughs> that's we're not live, right? <laughs> we, we're live, but not live. Exactly. So, Let me explain that. Sure. Uh, in the interest of total transparency, this show was actually recorded yesterday. The battle against COVID-19 has put a strain on all of the systems, including how we do our jobs. Trying to do live radio using cell phones, just not secure enough. Hence, the decision to play it safe. So, thanks, Frank. And you're right. There's going to be no phone calls on the show this morning. But I have got a pile of emails that I'd like to deal with. And frankly, perhaps going forward, it might be appropriate for us to, to for people to send in more emails. We may end up doing this as our show for the next little while. Uh, do you want to give my email address? That's a great idea. It is C. Dobbin, that's D O B B I N, at mzmedia.com. Okay? Thanks, Frank. And so, there, you know what? This week, everything changes on an hourly basis, but what is an essential service has become a bit of a deal. And in my industry, the garden center, landscape industry, there's a little confusion about what is essential and what is not. So some garden centers are open for curbside pickup, meaning you can email in an order or phone in an order, and with no contact at all, your order will be out on the curb at a certain time for you to pick it up. And then some other garden centers are saying, oh, gosh, we're not essential, so they're not doing it. So just so everybody a heads up, check your local garden centers. If possible, do your shopping and do it locally. Yeah, you had a note there from uh, Marcia at Glen Echo, I do believe. Well, Marcia was was sending this on behalf of Glen Echo, and Glen Echo was open, and then all of a sudden they recognized or identified themselves as being non-essential, so they shut down their curbside service. But Pathways to Perennials is open for business, and there are a number of them uh, all across Ontario. Terra Greenhouses appears to be open for curbside pickup, uh, Vandermeers in Ajax. So there's quite a few of them, Woodhill Garden Centre in Thornhill. So you can shop, and trust me, gardening is trendy. People are got a lot of time on their hands and wanting to get out in the garden. Okay, Charlie, uh, we're all set to answer a few emails here on The Garden Show. Now, here's one from Martha Henry. <laughs> My poor hibiscus. Hi, Charlie. I've had an hibiscus for almost two years. In summer, it lives outside on the deck. Now, last year, it picked up a parasite that I've not been able to get rid of. Picture is attached. I'm not sure what this is. In winter, I have a southeast-facing window which basically gets the most light in the house. 
And she goes on to say the plant started dropping leaves in the summer, and now new leaf growth is stunted and a paler green than usual. I've sprayed the plant three times with a dish soap water solution. I can't see any parasites, but leaves are still turning yellow and dropping off. Is it possible the soil is contaminated? I repotted it early last summer using an old pot that seems to have been the start of the problems. Uh, I'd like to save this plant if possible, but I'm getting to the point of giving up on it. Thanks for any suggestions you can make. Thanks, Marilyn. So there you go. Okay. Thank you, Frank. Yes, indeed. This uh, picture is quite an ugly looking plant. Uh, it is a tropical hibiscus. So just to address a couple of the things that Marilyn uh, mentions, she repotted it last summer using an old pot. Assuming she washed the pot before she repotted into it, it shouldn't be a problem. You can definitely use pots for years and years and years. Just make sure that any of the salt build up, that you know, the white salty stuff that builds up on the inside of the pots is scrubbed out. And of course, make sure it's fresh potting soil that we're potting into. So fresh as in uh, straight out of the bag, sterile, uh, moist, uh, not even necessarily a potting soil because soilless mixes are all the, the rage these days. But either way, just make sure that it's clean, sterile, soilless mix or potting soil, clean pot. What I believe is going on with Maryland's hibiscus is something that is very rampant in the world of hibiscus growers, and that is white fly. White fly is a huge pain in the rear end. Um, it does seem to come out of nowhere. Every About every December, it seems to emerge on my hibiscus, even though the plant is clean and clear uh, the rest of the year. And, uh, and what I do, and I, you know, this works for me is I cut the plant way back because the little white flies are on the newest growth. They're on the, the tips, the most succulent, newest little leaves. So I do a pretty hard pruning back. And as I'm pruning everything I cut off, I'm jamming it into a green garbage bag and sealing it up as I go because those white flies start flying around and you'll start settling in on other plants. Once I've cut it back substantially, leaving a few leaves on the plant, I give it a, a spray. Now, Marilyn commented that she used a soap, a dish soap and water solution. Okay, dish soap is one thing, detergent is another. Likely what Marilyn used is detergent, and detergent will not kill insects. It does give them a great bath, though, so she's probably got the cleanest insects out there, uh, but she really needs to use soap. So you can buy insecticidal soap at the store. You can buy it in a concentrated form and mix it up yourself, or you can buy it in a ready-to-use bottle. I would be using that, but remember, the soap must contact the insect, and it, it will kill the insect if the insect is coated in the soap. Uh, I like another product called End All, which is soap-based but also has pyrethrins in it. Again, thorough, thorough spray to the dripping point. And, and then a rinse. I let this sit there for an hour or so. I rinse with clean water. And then as my backup, I use my favorite little yellow sticky sticks, which are those insect attracting um, yellow, like flypaper sticky uh, gizmos that put on, you put on a little stick into the soil and the insects get stuck in there if they've survived everything you've just done. And, um, and that's my best way of dealing with hibiscus and all the insects that love hibiscus. So I'm sorry to say, but it is a tasty plant. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was I was so proud of myself, actually. I was sitting here with bated breath waiting for you to, I wonder if she's going to mention about that 
soap water solution because I was all ready to jump in there and say, <laughs> uh, remember, safer soap, but not detergent. You know? oh, so I, I you have learned a lot. You have learned a lot. That's cool. You know more than just nematodes, eh? <laughs> exactly. Okay, uh, Charlie, here's our, our next email. It's from Connie Alexander, mm-hmm. and it's about her hydrangea tree. She says, good morning, Charlie. I live in the Midland area. I have a five-foot PG little limelight hydrangea tree that I need to move. Uh, and a number of little questions along here, and I'm just going to forget my, uh, my patrolman's outfit here. She says, how far out should I go to the base to dig up the roots? How should I prepare the hole it's going into? And I have a sand gravel mix, and it's going to be uh, going to go to my daughter's who has some sand gravel and clay. When should I move it, and is it worth the trouble? Will <laughs> it survive? And she got his little note on here. We enjoy listening to your program every Saturday morning with our copy. Thanks for your help, Connie. Wow, number of questions there, Charlie. Uh, you know, away. <laughs> don't hey Frank, don't you love it? When people phone into the show, we hold them to one question, but when That's they right. get their little fingers on the keyboard, there's four questions there. No worries. <laughs> Okay, good questions, Connie. You know what's the biggest um, bit of information you didn't give me, though, is how long has that plant been in that location? The size is not that relevant. But the size will have an indication on, um, you know, how big of a root ball, how, how heavy it's going to be to move. The, so the height and the roots are connected. So we look at the size that way in terms of root ball. And you should be digging out the biggest root ball that you can possibly carry. Make sure the soil is moist. Make sure the soil sticks to the roots when you dig it up. So get yourself an old sheet or a piece of um, burlap and use that to hold the soil in place because you're going to be transporting that <clears throat> tree <clears throat> Excuse me, in a, in a vehicle. And then, of course, prepare the hole at your daughter's before you arrive with the newly dug up hydrangea. So you're going to dig the hole the same depth that the root ball is that you dug up. You're going to go slightly wider. You're, of course, going to be bringing soil with you. You're going to have some extra soil on hand to go around. You're going to firm it into place firmly, thoroughly, not not too hard, but, you know, firmly. Uh, Probably going to want to stake that tree because it is five feet tall. You want it to get roots settled in. And the only way those roots can settle in is if the plant stays, you know, big movement in the wind. Of course, water thoroughly when you get there. And you can do it anytime now. So when is, is now is the best time? And is it worth the trouble? I love this plant. I would, I would make this effort because the limelight, you mentioned it's a little lime. I brought a, some limelight hydrangea with me out uh, to my new home. I love this plant. If it's in a sunny, well-drained spot, it is just going to thrive and give you so much pleasure and hundreds and hundreds of flowers. It's one of my all-time favorite hydrangeas and and really favorite ornamental plants it's so low maintenance no insects bug it no diseases get it it's just a real joy to have in the garden so good oh, for you and great. good luck want to make sure everything's still okay out there in prince edward county how are you doing charlie i'm doing great uh i like that sous chef of the garden i like better i even prefer the under 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 garden <laughs> oh but okay. hey so, Frank, guess what I saw this morning in my backyard? What did you see? A white-tailed deer. Like, right really? Up, right up my back door. And young, like a young deer. And so cute. Like, it started, you know, you know how deer leap around and frolic? 
So, you know, I have a, the feral cat who moved with us here to the county, the wild cat. Yeah. Well, the cat caught sight of the deer and started to growl. <laughs> it was so funny. <laughs> it was like, and then the cat was like all freaked out. Like, is that deer coming in here? Like, it's, a, it's quite a bit bigger than the cat, right? So the cat went into hiding, growling under the chair, making sure that, you know, he was safe from that marauding deer. <laughs> but you know what? That's got me thinking. I got to really, really learn and focus and do research on uh, plants that are tolerant or at least not tasty to deer. Oh, right. Yeah. I have a I lot mean, of planting. Coming, they're coming right up to your back door and watch out. They'll get into your kitchen. For <laughs> you know, exactly. You Open know. the fridge and help himself with some <laughs> yeah, lettuce. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, alrighty. Uh, let, I'm just imagining all the people who are at home at this very moment listening in and that crowd would include a lot of new gardeners, so mm -hmm. I hope you're picking up some valuable tips here, my friends. Uh, let me get back to an email that we've got uh, right now. It's from uh, Helene Robert, a subject pruning a sand cherry, from, and she lives in East Gwillimbury. She says, hi, Charlie. I keep forgetting to call on Saturdays, but I download all your podcasts and really enjoy the show. I have an outgrown sand cherry, that I'd like to prune. Is winter a good time? Would it survive a considerable pruning? Uh, it barely flowered last spring, was sweating some sticky sap by the main trunk, and I witnessed what I believe are carpenter ants on and around it. Thank you, and keep up the excellent work, Helen. Hmm. Great question. All right, so and Helen brings up the podcast, so that is a good thing for everybody to keep in mind as well. This show is podcast. You can re-listen to it at any time at your convenience, uh, both through the AM740 website and through iTunes. So, you know, if I'm going too fast, there's too much information coming at you, remember you can listen and slow it down, make notes, uh, and do whatever works for you. You've got to love podcasting. So, Sand Cherry. For those of you that aren't sure what a sand cherry is, it is a shrub with purple leaves and really pretty pale pink flowers in the spring. Again, it's one of those tasty plants, similar to the hibiscus we were talking about a few minutes ago. It has quite sweet sap in it, and as a result, it does tend to um, attract some insects that like to lick that sap. So the ants you're seeing on the plant are likely not carpenter ants. Carpenter ants um, only eat dead wood, so they don't ever eat live trees and shrubs at all. Uh, but ants in general love sweet stuff. So, <clears throat> yes, indeed, the ants are probably climbing up because there's some splits in the bark. I want you to look closely, Helen. If you have real, real, like, broken bark, oozing sap in the main trunk of this plant, then you are going to have to just cut it down and give it up because that is a fungal disease. It's called black Knot, so K N O T, knot, black knot. It is a quite well known killer disease that gets all the prunus family. So plums get this uh, disease, uh, fungal disease, as do the purple sand cherries. But if it's not that, if it's not th this black knot disease, and it's strictly the um, aphids that also love this plant who were putting little holes in the leaves of the plant and causing stickiness to drip, then the ants were attracted to that. So do start with, is this plant salvageable? It will be salvageable if the bark is intact. In terms of when you prune it, 
normally we prune it after it flowers. So personally, if it was my tree, I would probably leave it for the next six weeks or so. I'd be keeping an eye on the other purple sand cherries in the neighborhood in case this one is not going to be doing any blooming this year. Remember, you can cut off dead wood at any time. But uh, if there's any, you know, buds that, that are going to open, enjoy the flowers. As soon as the flowers are done, give it a hard pruning on a nice dry day. Remember, you're damaging the tree. You're injuring the tree when you do the pruning. Sharp pruners make a difference. So clean cuts, sunny day so that the injuries will dry quickly. And, uh, and, and keep an eye on the plant. If you do end up seeing aphids, the aphids are green or black. They're sometimes even yellow. They'll arrive uh, by June on the plant, and they'll be on the tips on the new, newest growth. And you'll need to get out your, you know, bug be gone or your soap solution, not detergent, but soap solution, and then uh, spray, spray, spray to kill the insects, not at high noon on a sunny day because that hurts the plant. So early in the day or late in the day, and you'll kill the, kill the bugs, but keep the plant ha- happy and healthy. Okay. And you mentioned uh, cleaning or at least uh, having sharp shears. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about a, cl- a solution to put on, on the uh, blade? Is there anything that you want you to apply? That, that's a good point, actually, Frank. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So what, when we're doing a lot of pruning in our gardens, we want to ensure that we don't transfer either insects or diseases from plant to plant. So, yes, after you're finished pruning this purple sand cherry, get out your rubbing alcohol or your bleach solution and clean the blades of your pruners or your loppers or your saw uh, at that time. But you do not need to clean in between every cut because you're still on the same plant. But before you move to any other plant, make sure you're taking sterile tools with you. So, yes, indeed, good point. Okay, Uh, let's go to another email here. Um, Let's see, Gloria Gribble says, this one's about her orchid. She says, I have an orchid that's in full bloom, but there's only one leaf left on the plant, and it's turning brown and rusty. What should I do to save this plant? I've had it for about four or five years. My two other orchids are thriving. Hmm. Oh, I love these orchid questions. (laughs) (laughs) Orchids, they are so popular these days. They're so available. And she's had for quite a while four or five years. So in bloom, but losing leaves, which is a bit odd. Usually it's the other way around. Usually we've got leaves on the plants, but no flowers. So I'd be looking really closely at this plant to see, is there something going on? Maybe spider mites? Uh, Has it been overwatered? And yet in full bloom, I don't think it's been overwatered. Um, But when when green leaves are turning brown, it's one or the other usually. It's too much water or not enough water. So, Gloria, um, <clears throat> this email did come in a, a while ago. So maybe Gloria has actually moved on and the plant has gone into the composter or has survived the winter. Because, of course, winter, low light is always a tough time with some of the, the tropical plants. This would be a Phalaenopsis orchid, commonly known as a moth orchid. Happiest in an east window or a north window, so bright indirect light. Uh, I love the idea of immersing the plant, the pot and plant, into a pail of room temperature water that sat out to be room temperature. That also has some orchid fertilizer in it, just low level of fertilizer. So immersion of the entire plant, let it drain in the kitchen sink or bathtub, and then back into the window till the next time when it's time to water it. Um, once the flowers are done, 
Eventually, the flower stem will turn brown, and at that point, we cut that out. And in the meantime, just watch for new green growth, which, of course, probably has been happening as the days are getting longer, and do everything in your power to maintain green leaves on the plant, because it will die without the leaves, obviously. Uh, First thing I teach my students about is photosynthesis and the importance of green leaves. So we got to have the leaves in order to get the flowers. And um, if she's got two other orchids that are thriving, then, you know, she's obviously doing something right. Um, That's why I suspect maybe something got onto this one, this one orchid, and is bringing it down. So a real close inspection, I think, is a good idea before you do anything with that plant. Okay. And I want folks to keep in mind now, you're listening to a master gardener who admittedly has killed more orchids than most people. (laughs) I never met an orchid I couldn't kill. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks for that reminder, Frank. (laughs) Well, just thought I'd throw that in, you know. I can tell. I can tell. (laughs) All righty. We have another another email here, Charlie. There's, um, and this is, uh, let's see here, Patricia, about her Mandeville, says, uh, hey, Charlie, I have two Mandevilles that I've overwintered successfully. Uh, there are healthy green shoots sprouting up, and they're getting quite long. Should I cut them back a bit so they'll get more shoots and not be so long and spindly, or just let them grow? Also, what kind of fertilizer <laughs> should I use, and is this the right time to start using it? Thanks, yeah. Patty. There you go. See, sneaking in those extra questions. People love email. See, on the phone, we can control them, but on the email, they can write me a whole novel here. But it is good. I'm, this is, I'm glad we're getting to some of these uh, questions here on the air for a change. Cause I, I sit here by myself writing these big long answers back to people quite often. And then I just, you know, run out of steam, run out of time. So hopefully all these writers are also listening today, listening into the show and hearing the real live answers to their questions. Um, Mandevilla is a tropical plant. Many people buy them in the spring and they pay good, pretty good money for them. And then they enjoy them all summer outside, blooming. They're vining kind of plants. They have a, a trumpet-shaped flower. Usually they're pink. Sometimes they're kind of a deep red. Uh, and they're very, very popular. Hummingbirds will come to them. Uh, and they're just really pretty. So bringing them in in the fall is something that a lot of people do because they just don't want to throw them away. They've paid a lot of money for them. And in this case, Patricia's are, patties are, are overwintered successfully. And yes, indeed, those healthy green shoots do need to be trimmed back. Number one, they're going to take over your house. And number two, they're just... That you want to make the plant bushier. So likely it's fairly spindly after the winter inside, even in a nice bright sunny window. So do some cutting back. Don't be afraid to twine some of those shoots around, but also do some tip cutting back in order to cause some side shoots, which is how we're going to thicken up the plants. And then they'll be in real good shape to go outside once we're frost free. Um, now, what kind of fertilizer should I use? Pretty much up to you. Uh, a flowering plant fertilizer is very traditional. People will use, uh, some people like miracle Grow, but and my favorite combination or fertilizer analysis is like a 15, 30, 15. So it's that middle number, the phosphorus number being twice the ratio of the nitrogen and potassium on either side. It's a, I find that's a, an excellent fertilizer for encouraging flowering in all my flowering plants. And is this the right time to start using it? Absolutely, yes. When your plants are actively growing, it is the time to fertilize them. 
So March is always our traditional month to start fertilizing all of our plants, whether they're indoors or indoors now going out. Uh, once we get out into the garden, again, things are going to be actively growing. We're going to start fertilizing our roses, our trees, our shrubs once we're out in the garden. So this is the time to do it. But remember, we don't continue to fertilize year round. We only fertilize to the end of the growing season. So that might be August uh, or late July for the outdoor plants. Uh, and otherwise, it's just the um, the kind of fertilizing that we do with our indoor plants. We, we again, slow right down on the fertilizing when the plants are not actively growing. And that's the important thing to know. And that was something that Marsha asked, Frank. Remember at the very beginning of the show, you were mentioning that Marsha Lomas had sent us a couple yeah. of emails. Yeah, about the, yeah, the idea of some of the nurseries being open for curbside pickup. She asked as well when to start fertilizing shrubs, clematis, perennials. Uh, and frankly, it's now, it's now in the spring. Uh, and when to unwrap the evergreens? That's a good question. Will, what do you think, Frank? Is there going to be more snow? Or we got, we got another, is March uh, going I, out? Oh, no, I, we're not through with snow yet. I yeah. Don't think. There's I think not at right. least one good winter storm yet. Exactly. Because, you know, we've got that lion thing that has to happen still. And of <laughs> course, it is the end of March, but we still got time for it to happen. So I personally would not unwrap your evergreens yet. Keep an eye, keep an eye on the forecast. Um, make sure that, you know, if some big wind, like it's the cold wind that'll really do damage to the evergreens at this point. So if there's big cold wind coming, just wait. Uh, snow isn't going to damage much at this point because any snow we have isn't going to last. But, um, but yeah, leave those wraps on as long as you can or loosen them on a warm day and don't take them right away. I do that with my roses when I cover them in the fall. I will uh, sometimes in the spring just take the soil away a little bit and keep it close by in case I need it due to a cold snap coming. And, um, yeah, fertilizing, get on it. That's what I would nope. do. Well, you're listening to Zoomer Radio AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. And it's the Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin. You know, Charlie, I believe we got time now for an email from Paul Ebert. He yeah. says, hello, Charlie. Great show. I have an aloe vera plant that's about 8 to 10 years old. Now, this past winter, I cut the bottom eight to ten leaves off it. Now it has grown over an inch and wants to tip over. I have a rope tied to it to help me keep straight. <laughs> There's about an eight to nine inch bare space from where I cut off the leaf. Should I get a larger pot and replant it by putting it on its side like an over-ready tomato plant? Or should I cut off that bottom dead zone and replant it? This plant has given me nine babies, and I've removed four and repotted them. And the ones with the mother plant are growing like weeds. Thanks very much, Paul. Hmm. Oh, my goodness. Poor plant. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I can just see it all tied up. My mom used to do that with tomatoes, right? She would always tie the poor things up. I was like, oh, my God. Not very nice. Bondage on the plants. Okay. So, Paul, I get it. Big old overgrown aloe vera, totally top heavy, lying on its side. Personally, what this idea of cutting it off, cutting off that dead zone at the bottom and replanting it, that's not going to work. If you, you're not going to be able to root the top part of the plant. Like you can't just cut off the top of an aloe vera and stick it in a jar of water and get roots to grow out of the bottom. That's not going to work. You're going to have to, if you like that big monster plant, you're just going to have to work with it. And I agree that getting a bigger pot and letting it lie on its side, just like it wants to, uh, is just going to be the way to do it. 
keep it in that sunny location, keep the water right down, you know, water thoroughly when you water, but don't overwater and don't water too often because the less you water that plant, the slower it's going to grow. Um, don't try and force it to be straight. It's not going to be, it can't be a straight plant, not in a pond like that. So, so if you love it, if you love the, like what we would call the mother plant. So the, the big one, if you love that plant, keep it, just give it a bigger pot and lots and lots and lots of sun and only water, you know, once or twice a year kind of thing. And yeah, of course, all those little babies are very naturally growing off the, off the, um, the crown of the mother. So severing those and giving them away to friends and starting up a, your own aloe vera nursery makes total sense to me. Uh, you can let them stay at the base of the mother plant, or you can sever them as you've been doing and potting them up and giving them away and just having lots and lots of aloe veras. So yeah, I, that either way makes sense, but you will not be able to just slice the top off and have the whole thing survive. That's just not going to work. Sorry. Okay. Uh, I have a, a note here from Heather McCullen in Allison. And this question actually will apply to a lot of folks who are considering even just starting a garden, maybe for the first time. Mm-hmm. But she has a plot of land in the backyard that uh, used to be the site of a children's playground. And there's a lot of pea gravel, small stones. And she says, should I rototill the area first? And then I'm, I'm talking about putting in the garden about 15 by 20 feet. And how should I prepare the soil? So there you go. Wow. Interesting. Uh, okay, number one, do not rototill. Just put that rototiller in the back of your garage and forget you've got it. You don't want to use a rototiller at all. What I would do, I guess, depending, she's in the Alliston area, you said. Yeah, so I'm just trying to think of the soil in Alliston. So the pea gravel... Is going to provide some drainage in a fairly clay soil. So the pea gravel is going to be a good thing. Um, what I would do if I wanted to put a garden in where the children's playground was and there's all this pea gravel, uh, first off, I'd say, remember, you want to grow, if it's a vegetable garden, a 15 by 20 foot vegetable garden, let's ensure this is in full sun all day. We need a minimum of six hours of sun, so no big trees overhanging this what used to be the children's playground that there's lots and lots of sun for the vegetables or whatever it is you're going to plant there to thrive i would uh, create a bit of a raised bed i would build some raised beds right on top of that pea gravel it doesn't have you, you don't have to go super high i just find that the older i get the more i love um the, the garden coming up to me so you know even if it's Eight inches, 12 inches, 16 inches high. Like it doesn't have to be, you know, three feet or four feet high. Just something that's a little bit above ground level. Uh, Optimal size is four feet wide. Length can be eight foot, 20 foot, any kind of footage you want lengthwise. Uh, Four feet is nice because then you can reach in from both sides. You can reach in the, the two foot sides to pull weeds, to plant to harvest. Um, the pea gravel is going to give you that wonderful drainage under the um, the gardens. And of course, you have full control over the soil that you put in to the, the raised beds you're going to build. So that they're like cribs, basically. It's a, um, actually, my neighbor here got a good deal on some of the composite wood so it's that trade names like azec it's a made from recycled whatever plastic looks like wood uh zero maintenance and so he got a good deal on some of that in the middle of winter and he's building himself some raised beds as we speak 
to grow vegetables. And I'm laughing and giggling because when I saw that deer out there today, I'm thinking, oh, that deer is going to love that right up at deer height. Just come on in and graze to your heart's content. So he's going to have to figure out a way to, to sit, you know, do a, some protection from the deer. But nevertheless, uh, yeah, um, but that's what I would do, uh, frankly, for this one, Heather. I, I, either that or scrape out some of that, uh, some of that pea gravel and then uh, start gardening into the ground there. I'm anti-rototillers because rototillers destroy the structure and texture of your soil. You do not want to use rototillers if you don't need to. Not that, at all. I'm glad you said it. That would, that would have been my first indication to go wrong. I would have said, oh, yeah, rototiller. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, it's not. You know, it's very – that's what we call conventional uh, horticulture, agriculture, is tilling and rototilling. Very, very traditionally, that's what gardeners and farmers have done. But – all indications, all research shows that it's one of the biggest mistakes you can make is till and or rototill. You don't do any favors to your soil whatsoever. You actually do a whole bunch of bad things to the soil when you rototill. So not recommended. You're listening to Zoomer Radio, AM 740, 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. And the Garden Show underway right now with Charlie answering a number of emails. And I think you have a couple under your sleeve there that you didn't let me take a peek at. So <laughs> away you go. <laughs> I just keep binding them, you know. they I don't know where these come from. Uh, thank you, Franklin. Uh, th- I do, this is a nice email. Uh, Steve J. says, Dear Charlie, this is a two-week-old email. So given the lovely day that was, and despite my compromised mobility, I managed to get out back on Sunday. The clippers in one hand, a requisite beer in the other. I trimmed back the ever-generous raspberry patch, as well as the temperamental clematis. Meanwhile, in the raised herb garden, the chives are peeking through. Woohoo! And the forsythia buds are on the way, such that I clipped a couple of branches to force indoors. Cheers from an avid and appreciative listener, Steve. Thanks, Steve. We love appreciative listeners, right, Frank? You betcha. We do indeed. We do. We love being appreciated. Um, and I appreciate you. I want you to know I totally appreciate you. I, this is uh, you know, a lot more fun with you, even though we're 200 kilometers apart. This is definitely more fun That's with you. <laughs> it's weird how it affects the show, because as I, I think mentioned last week, uh-huh. I uh, get a clue as to how I should run the show or at least reply to you from an arch of your eyebrow <laughs> or you know, a smile or a frown. You know, which way we go. So I'm trusting to luck. Everything is going to be on a smiley basis here today. (laughs) I know. I know. It's true. We're we're having to envision each other's body language as we're doing this. Uh, Okay. So another email that I'm sorry I didn't share with you. This is from Marilyn. Marilyn Lott. She broke her ankle in the springs. That would be last spring and was unable to trim two rows of Sharon bushes. Uh, She read on the Internet that if she could cut them back at least a third after they bloomed, is this true? So the question was, should she be trimming them? These untrimmed rows of Sharon's from last spring, should she be trimming them last fall before winter hit, or should she be waiting until this spring? Frankly, I'm a huge fan of doing all my rows of Sharon trimming in the spring. I don't, uh, I don't do any fall trimming on those. It's like the ornamental grasses or the hydrangea. I like what they look like in the winter. I like uh, the dried up little fruit husks or, or you know, old flowers turning bronze. I, I, 
I do most of all my pruning. I can't even think of anything I prune in the fall. I think I do pretty much everything in the spring. And it just, it, you can see the new growth coming. You can take out all the dead. Because remember, we're at that time of year now. If you can step into your gardens, remember the soil has to be dry enough for us to be walking around on the soil. But uh, if we are walking out into our gardens, now is the time to remove anything dead, anything diseased, uh, and anything that's damaged from winter wind and, um, you know, even rabbits and deer and whoever might have been chewing on the plants so it, we are you know get those pruners sharpened up make sure you've got a good set of loppers and be ready to go in your gardens because um you know this is the time to do it it's you can see really clearly what to prune and when yeah i was reading an interesting article on the net earlier uh, actually yesterday but in early spring they say before the ground is ready to be worked focus your energy on uh, hardscaping. The time to mm. repair damaged retailing walls, to level out your stepping stones, clean mm. out your gutters and thick fences, mm-hmm. etc. Mm-hmm. Window boxes, raised beds. These tasks easier to accomplish while your plants are still resting safely dormant. Pretty good idea, I think. Uh, absolutely. And, and it also keeps you busy in the garden and outside doing something, but keeps you off the soil, in, like off your garden soil. Um, the rule is, is that if you can pick up a handful of soil, squeeze your fist, and then open your hand, if the soil stays in a tight little ball in the palm of your hand, then you should not be walking on it because it is still too wet. Um, and again, that goes back to the, the texture and structure of our soil. We do not want to walk on it when it's too wet. We compact it, and the compaction is very bad, ultimately, for plant growth. Okay. Um, right? There's a, an article that I wanted to run by you here, mm-hmm. testing your garden soil. Experts mm-hmm. recommend testing your garden soil every three to five years to see what nutrients or organic materials it needs and which it has too much of. Can I have your thoughts on that? Oh, brilliant. I absolutely, I'm a huge fan of testing soil. Guess what I've been doing? As you know, I've been teaching an introduction to soil science at Durham College. Now, of course, we're doing virtual teaching, but I was teaching in the classroom uh, in Whitby for the last few months. And we have soil labs, and I've took soil samples from my new home in Prince Edward County, and my students have been giving me all kinds of information on my soil, including uh, fertility testing. So, yes, indeed, don't waste fertilizer. Know what is in your soil. Uh, yeah, don't waste money. Don't waste time. Know the quality of your soil. You can Some of it you can see, you can smell, you can feel but you do not know the nutrient value without testing. And that can be done in a a accredited soil testing lab for some dollars, $30, $40. Uh, But there are home kits as well, home soil test kits. Uh, The Canadian Tires, the Home Depots, people like that have those kinds of things. So you can also do a home test if you wish. It won't give you nearly the information that the labs will give you because they'll give you, you better information, more details. But it'll give you a sense. Uh, for example, most of us don't need to ever add phosphorus to our soils because Ontario soils have a lot of naturally occurring phosphorus. So we spend a lot of money on phosphorus fertilizers, and then it's uh, just a waste of time. It just piles up, becomes actually toxic in the soil, or runs off into the lakes and streams, and that's not good either. So, um, yeah. We're, we're into uh, Charlie's latter part of the month of March. And I, I can't recall the exact date that National Gardening Day is. Can you refresh my memory? Yes, it's coming up on April 14th. 
So get ready. Oh. Get ready to participate in National Gardening Day. It's, uh, of course, again, the kids are home. You know, we're many of us are at home, working from home, needing to get fresh air, needing to get outside and needing uh, physical exercise. So we don't have to wait till April 14th to get out into the garden. But certainly everybody should be kicking off the season April 14th. Pull up a good book. Look at some of the great websites out there. Make some plans for having an amazing garden if you can coming up this uh, okay. season. Do you know what? We're, we're screeching to a halt here on the show. Yes. I just got the word. <laughs> Joel, better wrap it up, guys. Yeah, okay. We, we had better do that. Charlie, it's been a, a treat and really a bit of a challenge, but uh, interesting nonetheless to do this show, though we are miles and miles apart. <laughs> and uh, certainly we want to thank Joel Schoenwell, uh, who is uh, putting all this stuff together. Uh, and uh, hopefully next week we'll have received some wonderful new emails to you once again. If mm-hmm. you want to send an email to Charlie with a question or two, it is c.dobbin, D-O-B-B-I-N, at mzmedia.com. Thanks, Frank. Couldn't do it without you. Thanks, Thank Joel. You, See you all again next week. This has been an exclusive podcast of The Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin. Heard every Saturday morning at 9 on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.